everybody. Welcome to Utterly Astounded, where eschatology meets current events meets real life. At least my regular real life at home here in Southern California. Well, I am here today with Mike Riccardi. Mike is a steadfast man of God. He has served on staff at Grace Community Church since 2010. He is the pastor of local outreach ministries, which includes a lot of evangelism in the community. And he is also the co-pastor of Grace Life Fellowship Group. Mike earned his BA in Italian and his Master's of Education in Foreign Language from Rutgers University and his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Theology from the Master's Seminary. He's just completed his PhD in Theology. Congratulations, Mike. He is a faculty associate at the Master's Seminary. He's been married to his lovely wife, for 12 years and he has three children. So today we're going to be talking about the rise of Marxism in this country and even somewhat in the church. But with every guest that I have, the first thing I'd like to know is your testimony. If you could just start off with a brief testimony of how God saved you. Sure, Lynn, thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. Um, the, well, a short version would be that I grew up in a Christian uh, family um, going to church each week for, for most of our childhood um, and believed that I was a Christian from a young age, understood the gospel. I understood that, uh, that if I disobeyed my parents, I got a punishment. And if I disobeyed my God the Father, right, that I would get a God-sized punishment. And that was hell and that God sent Jesus to die on a cross to, to save people from sin, from that punishment. If you would believe in him, you get that that salvation. So I always believed that intellectually, and it wasn't until I was um, just before I turned 15 that I realized I wasn't a Christian. That believing the facts about the gospel isn't the same thing as trusting in Christ for righteousness. And uh, the way that that I was exposed to the to that reality was that I was actually on a a trip uh, to Italy. My family's Italian American. My great aunt and uncle owned a house in southern Italy where my uncle grew up and we'd, they would go every year and I would always ask them to take me and they would always laugh because they said oh you think we're gonna go and do things exciting we just go to this old village with all these old people and just hang out and talk and uh, I said no I really want to go and they took me the summer before I turned 15 and uh, when I was there I just experienced uh, the, the kindness of God kindnesses that I attributed to God because I thought that I was a believer you know whether it was just the beauty of creation the, the pleasantness of friendship and company um, the reality that here I am you know a 15 year old kid with a, you know a family who loves me enough to take me to Italy for a, a summer vacation um, and I had been an angry um, manipulative self-indulgent child and young teenager and it was on that trip that I was just confronted with the notion that I had been given so many good things and again I attributed the giving of those good things to God because I, I thought I was a believer and so I, I had this sort of internal dialogue where I just said you know I, I've, I'm not living in a way that is answerable to all these good gifts that I've been sh given and shown the grace that I've been shown by God, something needs to change. I need to I need to start living in a way that makes sense of this. And so at the time, I would have said that I was rededicating my life or, or getting serious about my faith or something like that. And in the in the year that followed, as I you know came back home, got you know back into normal life, and began you know paying attention in church and going to Sunday school and listening to. Uh, some of the teachers that were there, and, and one in particular, his name was Alan, who was a dear friend, uh, who taught me how to read the scriptures, who taught me what it was to be a disciple of Jesus in the various spheres of my life. Well, I finally started reading the Bible, and as I read the New Testament especially, I was just blown away by Jesus, and I couldn't believe that this was the one that I always said I believed in, and, and he, how compelling and how glorious and how uh, attractive it was to, to be there with him and just learn of him through the scriptures. And, and as I read, I realized, oh, okay, what happened to me a year ago, whenever that was back in, in Italy, was not just sort of a change of mindset. It was God granted me saving repentance. He granted me 
the repentance that leads to life. I mean, Romans 2, 4 says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And that's what happened. I was overwhelmed with his kindness, and it caused me to change course. I mean, obviously, because of God's God's grace and illumination and, and regeneration, um, caused me to change course, and, and then I and I trust trusted in him. And as I read more and more, I just... I was just compelled further and further and served the church and, and uh, taught others and, and eventually decided to come out to seminary. And we're so glad that you did. <laughs> and I love every story of God's redemption. So thank you so much for sharing that. Well, let's dive into this topic, Marxism in this country. And I'm just going to give a simple definition, sort of the Wikipedia version of Marxism. The world is split into two classes or groups of people. There are workers and the richer capitalists who exploit the workers. Oppressors and the oppressed is the boil down. So the neo-Marxists apply that principle to groups identified by ethnicity or gender. If you claim to be a marginalized group in society, you claim to be oppressed and you have to overthrow the oppressor. So that would be anyone who doesn't agree with you. All worldly philosophies, which Marxism is one, attempt to usurp the place of Almighty God and come up with theories about why corruption and evil exist and what to do about it. So Marxism assumes that human nature can be transformed simply by changing societal structures. How do you set the world right? Revolution. You overthrow the oppressors in order to create a paradise where everyone is equal and gets along. So Marxist thought is more than a theory, writes philosopher Leslie Stevenson. It has, for many, been a secular faith, a vision of social salvation. So Marxism has become, for lack of a better word, trendy. I recently overheard a conversation between two teenagers in my town at the library saying exactly that. One said to the other, don't you know Marxism and communism are trendy? I nearly interrupted their conversation to give them a history lesson. I probably should have, but I didn't. So my first question being, how can we reach the younger generation who seems so captivated by Marxism and socialism? And of course, it's going to be the gospel, but also by way of worldview. It's a true uphill battle. A French political philosopher said that nowadays, when he wants to debate a Marxist, he has to import one from an American university. So what do you think about our young people? Well, it's certainly going to be a, a challenging mission field for sure, because uh, it is, as you've described it, a compelling alternative worldview. It's, it, it kind of latches on to some key realities that nobody who lives in God's world can deny, but it tries to sort of transpose its own secularist, humanist um, categories on the top of it. Everybody recognizes that something has gone wrong with us. Despite all the protestations about man's, mankind's basic and general goodness, we all have this concept of a great human problem that needs uh, a cosmic level solution. Um, and despite all these protestations that um, absolute morality is the imposition of certain hegemonic power, uh, and to use the, the sort of the cultural Marxist uh, understanding of uh, term of the term there, um, you know, they they certainly do have their own ethics and and pretty rigorous morals um, that if you disagree with can get you canceled. So uh, I think that's one of the ways that you you kind of confront this is you show the incoherence, the internal inconsistencies with. Um, what they're saying, because Marxism is fundamentally a modernist worldview, right? Marx comes up in the sort of post-enlightenment positivist era. Science is going to free us from things. We're going to, you know, man's, you know, apex of achievement is going to figure out how to, uh, you know, bring us true knowledge and, and solve the human dilemma. And what what's happening right now, neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, however you want to de describe it, critical theory, is fundamentally applied postmodernism. Okay, so they're trying to take a a worldview with fundamentally modernist presuppositions and apply it through the filter of postmodernism, which denies those very presuppositions. Like, you know, there is no absolute truth, or if there is, we can't know it. 
And so, uh, and uh, all morality is subjective and I have my truth and you have your truth, right? Those things are in fundamentally incompatible with Marxism. They're actually fundamentally incompatible with any rational thought because if you deny that absolute truth exists, then you've given up knowledge of itself. If we can't know that something is absolutely true, then it might not be true in all cases and then you don't really have good reason to hold to it as a, as a conviction, right? But if everything, if all knowledge is subjective that way, then, you, then one really can't know anything. And any claim, any knowledge claim, something is this way or it isn't this way. It's wrong to do X, you know, it's, it's wrong to subjugate minorities, right? It's wrong to enslave people on the basis of the color of their skin. Those are moral axioms that the neo-Marxist sort of trendy neo-Marxism wants to uphold but they don't have an epistemological basis to ground those as universal moral absolutes. Uh, they live like those are absolutes, but their epistemology says truth is relative. We all have our subjective morality. And so, you know, we could go to that person and say, well, what if, you know, what if my culture thinks it's right to subjugate minorities? Are you, are you saying, are you imposing your culture on me? Are you trying to oppress me with the exertion of your hegemonic power to determine my values? What makes you think that your values are objectively right? And right away, if they're honest with themselves, they're going to have to say, oh, I actually don't want to do that. And then they have to admit, well, yes, I guess if your culture is such that you want to enslave minorities, then I guess I can't really say anything about that, can I? Well, if they get there, then they've just, they've painted themselves into a corner of obsolescence. Nobody cares what you think if truth is just your opinion, if it's not valid outside of your zip code. Uh, I think that's one way we, we start that. We show the internal inconsistency with uh, statements like, there is no such thing as absolute truth and we shouldn't impose our values on others. And unless you agree with me about that, I'm gonna cancel you. <laughs> exactly. That's the cul-de-sac that they get into. And I like that if we can get them to maybe at least acknowledge that, that that's true. Maybe we'll have somewhere to go. Yeah. And then, and then it leaves them. So, you, so when you show somebody the internal inconsistency of their worldview, you know, then it leaves them sort of wondering, okay, where do I hang my, my hat then my intellectual, you know, worldview hat. And that's when we can say the scriptures offer the same bleak assessment. In fact, a, a worse assessment of uh, mankind that you do except it's in categories that you right now are currently rejecting. And you don't get to set what those categories are. Here is what scripture says. Here's what God says man's fundamental problem is. Here's what God says who, who man is, period, right? We're not the, you know, the, the, the naked ape. We're not the, the product of billions of years of evolutionary processes. We are the, the creatures created by in the image of a good and gracious God who owns us by virtue of creating us, gives us a law that is, you know, consistent with his own character to follow as, as his creatures, we are to live in a certain way, to be in a relationship with him. And we've all failed to live in that way. We've all incurred guilt before this perfectly righteous God who is our creator and therefore our Lord and our owner. And the penalty for that disobedience, that law-breaking, is punishment. It's eternal punishment in hell. And the, the reason that there is an infinite uh, penalty for sins by finite beings is because those finite beings are sinning against an infinitely holy God. And so there is an infinite punishment. And, the, there, and because it's infinite and we are finite, we have no way to pay for that infinite punishment. We have no way to answer to that and come out on the other side alive, you know, physically or spiritually. And so what God has done is he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we were commanded to live but failed to live, to die a death in the place of sinners, just as we deserved, and then to rise again in demonstration of his victory over sin and death. And now he calls everyone to trust in the work of that Christ, that, that son, alone for righteousness. And if you do, through no works of your own, through none of your goodness, but solely through grace, God will count Christ's life to your life so that you are counted as having obeyed the way Christ obeyed, even though you didn't. And, that, and that's on the basis of the fact that he treated Jesus that, like he lived your life and punished him, even though 
he was innocent. That's the gospel. That that isn't is an internally consistent worldview that answers uh, the the questions that the the Marxist, the cultural Marxist, the neo-Marxist, the critical theorist can't answer. And and so I think if we show the the weakness of the the worldview at the beginning, the internal inconsistencies, and then drive them to a place where we can give the the alternative, the true rendering of the, the view of the world in the gospel, you know, that's how we'll have to confront it. So let's move to the, some of the other layers that this brings with it, like equity being the new buzzword that we're hearing anytime we watch even five minutes of a news broadcast. And it's not equality. We believe in equality and treating every person made in the image of God as an image bearer of God, like you were saying. And we know God is not partial and we are commanded not to be partial. But equality of outcome, which is what they're talking about now, is different. Everyone has to be the same and have the same amount, regardless of ability, talent, or work ethic. And it seems to me that there's this rabid anger coming out of people when their demands aren't met. It seems like part of the description in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, but understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. And it goes on. And that's the word that's always gotten me, unappeasable. Nothing satisfies them. And I see that in spades in our society today. And I think it has to do somewhat with the covetousness defined to desire wrongfully, inordinately, or without due regard for the rights of others. God says, you shall not covet. You shall not demand things that haven't been given to you. And there is a proverb I find so intriguing. Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And in my study notes, it says that jealousy is the most uncontrollable sin. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... You know, sometimes people define equality and equity interchangeably. Um, and so sometimes the sort of the, the, the Marxist term is, is equity and, some, and sometimes the Marxist term is equality. And I don't know which one is supposed to be which in which conversation. <laughs> but if we talk about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome, I think that we have, you know, biblical categories to work with there. Um, the the neo-Marxism of today has always been concern with providing an equality of outcome. Everybody has to end up with the same, and, and that really is how we achieve utopia. Even that notion of equality of outcome, I mean, the reality of, is that you can't, you cannot uh, have an equality of outcome um, unless you control an enormous amount of things. Because though we are created equal in the sense of our dignity and worth as image bearers of God, it's not like one group of people has any sort of greater inherent value uh, over the other. Nevertheless, we are not all the same. You know, you, you're going to be better at certain things than I'm at. I'm going to be good at. I'm going to be better at certain things than you. You know, uh, if we really took this to its logical conclusion, the notion that real justice has not been achieved unless there is equality of outcome, you know, every sporting event should end in a tie. You know, uh, if, I, if I play Michael Jordan you know, or I mean, I suppose I don't I don't know how uh, I don't think no matter how old he is, he will always be a better <laughs> basketball player than me. You know, he could be in a wheelchair and will do better. You know, if I play Michael Jordan one on one or to take a, a contemporary example, you know, Steph Curry or LeBron James or whoever else, you know, one on one on basketball, I'm going to lose by a lot. Right. And that's not because somehow inherently. I'm less than them as a human being. It's simply that they have a certain degree of natural talent. They've cultivated those skills over years and years of practice. I don't have that natural talent. I've also not cultivated those skills over years and years of practice. And so I should not say that it's unjust for Michael Jordan to beat me in a basketball game. Uh, it's not. It, it's simply the case that his skills allow, allow him to perform better. If you were to say that justice requires equality of outcome in that scenario, you would probably have to like shoot Michael Jordan both of his kneecaps in, or, in order for that to happen. So do you see what has to happen in order to control and to, to get, get this quote-unquote equality for justice sake? Somebody has to be severely disadvantaged. And it, it's, not, it's not even in that scenario. It's not even that I can be so severely advantaged that I can be, you know, uh, raised up and helped, you know, uh, if I could walk on 
you know, stilts that made me a bunch taller. It still wouldn't, it still wouldn't help in that scenario. Equality of outcome must be engineered by the disadvantaging of someone else. Exactly. And you're talking about that enormous amount of control. And yeah. that's, I think what I see partly what's happening right now. And along with what you're saying, right. The Leonardo da Vinci should have never painted the Mona Lisa because he's making me feel bad as an artist. Right. 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 You know, so yeah. So socialism, which is sort of the uh, the overarching political philosophy that would have been advocated by Marx and Marxist thinking, it, it doesn't, though it, though it campaigns for an equality of outcome, it, it can't ever raise uh, sort of the poor to the wealthy, the status of the wealthy. It can't bring us from um, poverty, you know, disadvantage into advantage. What it has to do in order to create equality to force equality is to to take to disadvantage the advantage to bring uh th those who are rich or wealthy or well off or in the dominant class to bring them down so that everybody is of the same sort of mediocre level um and and that's not how god has designed man to function right god has not designed man to have no regard for his own well-being. There's something that he's created us with called a rational self-interest so that nobody does anything except that he believes, he could be wrong, but except that he believes that it's to his advantage to do it. And even those who are altruistic, even those who are self-sacrificial, they, they behave that way because they value that more than um, being what they might think of as selfish. There's always this notion of there's a self-denial unto a full, true self-actualization, even in the scriptures. You know, Jesus says, the one who uh, tries to, to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. So, so even that notion of, go ahead, lose your life in this life, but not simply for this, this sort of self-abnegation, this bare uh, self-abnegation, but deny yourself in order to find your life in the way that it matters. And so uh, the, the notion of a free market where everybody is competing to, you know, uh, in, you know, business people are competing to provide the best goods and services at the lowest cost and uh, our lowest price. And then the, the consumers are trying to find the, the best product at the lowest cost. Um, and they all sort of compete with this rational self-interest that drives prices lower because if I can do it for cheaper, then they're going to, and, and still make a good, as good of a product, they'll come and get it from me. And uh, that's how, that's how our society has lifted. That's how, you know, the American society has lifted um, millions out of poverty and moved them up in a, in a chain of upward mobility so that, no, it's, it's not the case that you go from dirt poverty to you know, absolute riches, you know, generational wealth within a single generation. But over time, uh, those who started out at the bottom with nothing have gone, you know, one step closer and then their children one step closer. And, and then everybody builds on, on uh, everything else. For socialists, right, for Marxists, there can be no upward mobility. There can only be the tearing down of success to make everybody mediocre. And that's just not consistent with how God has designed man to be. Exactly. And, you know, Marx was influenced by Rousseau and his writings inspired Robespierre in the French Revolution, Marx, Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, Mao, and Pol Pot, who murdered a quarter of the population in Cambodia. And Rousseau's thinking is key to understanding the worldview because those are the roots. And it's fascinating when you go one more layer deep in any of these philosophies, like we're talking about, it's always against the one true God and it's rebellion. You find rebellion against him and his authority and his design. And Rousseau believed that we were disconnected, autonomous individuals whose sole motivating force was the desire for self-preservation. He called it self-love, which we see all the time. And Rousseau wrote the famous line, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. He didn't mean the chain of political oppression, apparently, but rather oppressive relationships that were personal ones like marriage and family and church and workplace. And he thought the reason re social relationships were oppressive was because they interfered with the individual's freedom to create himself, which is an anti-God view. And that type of thinking has been in our midst 
for quite some time. He was born in 1712, so it's not new. It's just regurgitation of ideologies that try to usurp the one true God. And here's Karl Marx and everybody, or all of these new Marxists looking up to him. But by the accounts I've read, he didn't really care about the common man that he said that he did, but he didn't. He didn't do an honest day's work, just sat in libraries and made stuff up. He had a bunch of money troubles and his family refused to help him because he was, quote, regarded as incorrigibly idle and improvident. And that is what Paul Johnson says from his book, The Intellectual. So his personal life is nothing to be emulated. And we have all these people running around proudly proclaiming that they're Marxists. He wasn't even a likable person, never mind the destructive philosophies. So how does a man like Marx or taking it back further, Rousseau shape a worldview accepted by so many? How in the world is it creeping into the pores of this great country? And I know that the United States is not our true home. We are made for heaven. I know that. And we are under judgment right now, and rightly so. But it is hard to watch our Judeo-Christian roots being yanked out and steam rolled over at an alarming rate, replaced by ideologies we fought to put down. People sacrificed their lives to keep us free in this country from that kind of thing. And now they're being consumed, these these worldviews like the flavor of the month. I understand in theory what we're dealing with. It's a atheistic worldview, but I like the way the author puts it in a book you recommended to me, Always Ready. An unbeliever is not simply an unbeliever at separate points. His antagonism is rooted in an overall philosophy. That's Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He is an enemy of God in his mind because he cannot know the things of the spirit. The unbeliever suppresses the truth, Romans 118, and exalts his reasoning against the knowledge of God. And that's 2 Corinthians 10, 4, 5, is that our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So I know all this is happening, but how in the world could it be happening? <laughs> Are people unconcerned about thinking this through? Willful blindness, being naive, brainwashed, beholden to the prince of the power of the air, or a combination of it all? I am astounded at the ambivalence I see on this topic, especially on where it's leading us. Even in the church sometimes, I don't think I'm an alarmist. I think I'm a realist. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that those views are popular because they they always originate in man's fallen desire to be the Lord of his own life, right? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's the, the cry of every unbeliever's heart. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Um, and we... We, we don't, we refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ, the Lordship of God, the triune God. And so uh, we, we substitute ourselves. And so it's not hard uh, to, to see that people think that when they're throwing off the, the restraint of the divine law, they think what they're doing is you know, removing shackles, when really what they're like is a skydiver who feels encumbered by uh, the, the straps of a parachute. And they say, ah, you know, I need to be free. I need to be unencumbered. Get this this backpack off of me. And the reality is that restraint is the only thing that's keeping you from certain destruction. And I think our society, I mean, men have always been sinful. You know, societies have always been corrupt. But our society has turned a corner with, um, you know, the, the antagonism and the blatant idolatry um, in, in the face of God, as it were shaking our fists, you know, spitting in his face, you know, we will not have this man to rule over us. And I think it's the judgments of Romans 1. Romans 1 talks about three stages of God's judgment of abandonment on any society when they reject the creator and worship the creature. You know, Romans 1 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be honored, dishonored among them. That's a sexual revolution. And we saw that happen in the United States society in the 60s with the the free love movement, the hippie movement, these sorts of things where we threw off the, the social conventions regarding sexual intimacy and, and celebrated um, fornication. And then it says, 
Uh, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men have ended the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. And so there's, after a sexual revolution, there's a homosexual revolution, which our society saw, you know, begin in the 80s and then really come to a culmination in 2015 with the Obergefell v. Hodges ruling, which basically legalized marriage, uh, gay marriage, uh, so-called gay marriage in the, you know, the United States. And at that point, when you see the White House lit up in the rainbow flag, which is another, you know, blasphemous uh, opposition provocation to God's face, the rainbow being his own promise not to destroy the world in judgment um, with the with the flood like he did the one time because every, you know, intent of the thoughts of man's hearts were only evil continually. Uh, so now we take this symbol of God's mercy uh, upon a, a wicked world and we turn it into the the opposite of what he has de you know declared his design for marriage to be and then we as a nation we celebrate that you know i heard not long ago that the ambassadors to countries want to fly the rainbow flag alongside the american flag in the embassies of the various countries that we're in the u.s embassies so we're we're as a country we're identifying ourselves as explicitly anti-god at the building blocks of society namely marriage and the family and so for this reason, right, just as they did not see it, Romans Romans one twenty eight, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And, and, and the depraved mind is a mind that simply doesn't work. It's a mind that doesn't function. It's a mind that's been rendered useless to the point that now, you know, we didn't just have Mother's Day two days ago. We had birthing person's day because we can't say you know that because mother is a gendered term and our society is of such a, a useless and depraved mind that we can no longer say that a man is a man and not a woman and a woman is a woman and not a man um you know we're, we're at the point where we, we actually are having people challenge the notion that two plus two equals four um not surprising i thought it it would eventually come to that right i mean <laughs> you don't know if a man is a man or a woman is a woman what's next well Basic right. math. Well, but everybody, everybody is an is an objectivist and a and a traditionalist when it comes to their own checkbook, though. Because Absolutely. If you, if you show up at the <laughs> bank and you say, "No, sorry, you know, two plus two equals four is you know patriarchal, dom you know, male dominated uh, Western thinking." Uh, actually, you don't have any money in your bank account, and it's all in my account. There's going to be some some concern about that. People aren't going to say, "Oh, yes, that's the new politically correct, sensitive, diverse, inclusive." inclusive uh, um, math. No, the reality is, is, is our minds have been given over. And so how can people who have lived with the benefit of a lot of God's common grace, like the United, you know, the folks in the United States of America, how can they all of a sudden, you know, embrace the very ideologies that, like you said, that you, that the United States fought to put down because they recognized uh, the damage that they did, that the, the measurable identifiable damage and lives that were lost as a result of the the application of these ideas how can we we run into those very things because god has given us over to a depraved mind because we, we can no longer think as a collective society and and psalm 2 says the lord who sits in the heavens laughs this is his judgment upon us and uh the church's you know uh, role is to be salt and light and to proclaim that coming judgment and to proclaim the only way out of that judgment, which is faith alone in Christ. Do you think it will be worse for America because of the light we've been given? Yeah, I think that's a clear biblical principle that uh, the one who kn knows his master's will and doesn't do it is beaten with m more blows than the one who didn't do or didn't know his master's will and also didn't do it. That's Luke 12. It, if you know that, uh, that this is what God would have you to do and you, you don't do it, there's you, you, you bear a greater responsibility. And uh, yeah, there are nations who would have never heard of the name of Jesus, who would never heard of the gospel, who have no idea about salvation through a cross, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and they will be judged because they are sinful. Um, but the greater sin is the one who has seen the great revelation uh, of God and rejected it. 
You know, Jesus said that, right? If the miracles had been done in Sodom, which are done in you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, you know, they would have repented a long, long ago, and so your judgment will be worse. How much more for us, who we've had 2,000 years of reflection on, on that word, as well as we've, we've enjoyed cultures and societies, for the most part, grounded in the morality given to us in the Bible, and we've squandered it. And so, yeah, I think that those who find themselves outside of Christ in that great day will simply will be without excuse and will face a, a harsher and more severe judgment um, for having rejected the light that they did have. And I can somewhat understand that in the secular world, but what about the movement, the social justice movement, and Marxism being embraced by churches? This is a satanically inspired system. It has no place in the church, and yet it's being welcomed in some instances. Is this part of the apostasy? And I know there's a difference between the general apostasy and the great apostasy, <laughs> but do you just think that's par for the course, or do you think it's specific? You know... The, the embrace of the so-called social justice movement, the embrace of critical theory into mainstream evangelicalism, in one sense, is just the, the latest outworking of the church's infatuation with pragmatism. Um, how, how do we reach the world? We become like the world. And right now, the world is very concerned with these concepts of justice and equity and all these things. And, uh, and so the church is really, it's simply aping the world once again. In the 90s, it was the seeker-sensitive movement with, you know, fancy multimedia presentations and well-dressed church members, you know, reaching out to folks of society who wanted to be more included in things. In the early 2000s, it was the emerging church movement with, you know, the, the sort of appeal to lowbrow culture and authenticity, quote-unquote, where everything was, you know, sort of glorifying the grunge rock culture and um, sort of crude language and things like this to show that we're really authentic. We're, we're sinners like you, and so you can be like us because we're just basically you with, with Jesus. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the connection with sort of, you know, left-leaning political philosophy um, plus a, a, uh, an infatuation with trying to win the, win the world by becoming like the world now since the world is justice conscious, the church is trying to do the same thing. And, uh, and there are biblical notions, right? There are biblical ideas, there are biblical concepts of doing justice in society that are attractive to well-meaning Christians who nevertheless don't understand how to apply those passages in the context we're in and in a way that is subordinate to the gospel and subordinate to the scripture itself. Um, there's always going to be... Look, it's always, it's always more attractive to you know, improve society and do those things, which are the outworking of a Christian faith, which the society itself will find pleasing, right? Nobody's going to be angry at a Christian who works to eliminate uh, abortion or eliminate sex trafficking or eliminate poverty or eliminate homelessness, right? Anybody who, th those are all, the, all of those things are the outworking of what a genuine faith works in individual Christians. And so when Christians give themselves to those kinds of things, social justice type things, the world applauds. What makes Christianity uh, distinctly Christian is not working for all of those things, right? Because unbelievers can work for all of those things if they recognize that those are the right things to do. What makes Christianity distinctively Christian is the message that it proclaims in the, uh, concerning the forgiveness of sins, which transforms the individual which then issues in uh, the reform of society. And nobody ever, the world never applauds an evangelist. He ne the world never applauds someone who testifies of it that its deeds are evil. That's what Jesus says. Your time is always opportune because the world loves you, but the world can't love me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. You can make the world a better place and the world will love you. You can say you do it in the name of Christ and they'll say, ah, whatever, that's good for you so long as the, the good things get done. But if you testify of the world that its deeds are evil, that they are so sinful that they have to be born all over again, and they only can be born all over again through a message which declares to them that they are hopelessly lost unless they trust in this one way, this one Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, and then submit their lives to him, they're not okay with that. And so if the world accepts the one and not the other, and Christians start thinking, well, Christians evangelize and Christians work for justice, 
well, I'll just be the kind of Christian that works for justice and some other Christians will evangelize and the world will like me, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm enough like Jesus who healed people and cared for people, then, I, you know, then, then they'll like, they'll, then they'll like me and they'll, for, therefore they'll be interested in Jesus. And the reality is Jesus did all the things that you say he did and they killed him. And the reason they killed him is because he testified of it, that its deeds were evil. So um, it's in the church because the church wants to win the world like becoming like the world. And because the church thinks that by doing some things, by emphasizing some good things that Christians are called to do, they can remove the offense of the cross, of the gospel message, and be received by the world. And they don't realize, they don't sort of put together, they don't make the application of Scripture that our methodology is we are unlike the world entirely, and therefore we speak to the world as others, as those who have been changed and remade and reborn, right? And we speak the message that calls them to that radical otherness as well, that rad- radical holiness as well. Uh, we, we don't come to people and say, look at how much alike we are. It's just a small leap from where you are to Christianity. We walk, we go up to people and we say, look at how different we are. Look at the standard that the scripture sets for us and you are not there. And what it takes for you to become a Christian is that you've got to be born all over again. Right. Well, great. Just a couple more questions here. Do you see Marxism and all that's happening on our shores as a link in the chain of the last of the last days? And I, I've considered this question of why America is not mentioned in Revelation. And I know there are different theories on that. I've often thought about what would be the takedown of this country. Sometimes I think it's the radical Muslims will take over or the Chinese will surpass and conquer us or nuclear war or any of those possibilities. But the last on my list was implosion from within. It was on the list, but last on the list. But today it's first on the list. It's like the proverb 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her own hands. That's what I see on the streets of the country, coupled by the judgment, the wrath of abandonment in Romans 1. So I'm not asking for anything prophetic, just as a watchman on the wall. What's your take? Yeah, I I think the answer that we've got to give is we just don't know. You know, in terms of, you know, we obviously know we were in the last days because we've been in the last days since Christ ascended, rose and ascended. You know, the the New Testament began the last days. Um, And so when people say, are we in the last days? Of course we are, but I think what they mean by that is, are we close to the end of time? And the answer to that is, you know, the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the sun. So uh, we don't we don't set dates. We don't become doomsayers and, and doomsday prophets and things like that. Um, you know, the, the world is going to get worse, and it's getting worse, right? Scripture tells us that evil men proceed from bad to worse. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what we expect to see. That's what we are seeing. And... You know, it, it was it was bad in, you know, World War One. It was bad in World War Two. It was bad before then in the, in the, in the Civil War with the, in the enslavement of of, uh, you know, blacks and and others. Uh, it's always been bad. The, the, the world has always been absolutely sinful. And, and I think that every everybody in every generation has always wondered, right, could it get any worse than this? And there and if not, because it doesn't seem like it can at the time. Is this the is this close to the end? And it, the reality is, is it's 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 not really a, a germane question because uh, you know Jesus has called us to to be on the alert. We don't know when the the master of the house returns, so we must be we must live as if it's our last hours every single day, and then we also must be prepared for the master not to return for a long while. And, and both those parables in Matthew twenty four and twenty five kind of teach that very same. Uh, they're the very opposite uh, uh, principles. Hey, he could come at any time, so be ready. Hey, he's a, he's a long way off, so live fruitfully, right? Live live with wise stewardship. Um, I just don't think it's wise to speculate any further than that. Mm-hmm. And I like that too. I've sort of grounded myself in that exact truth that we have to be ready if he comes sooner than expected, the master of the house, and then we have to wait and uh, take courage if he delays longer than expected. So I think that that is a great place to to live. Uh, just in thinking about society and the future, Mike, I know that, uh, you know, we teach our kids the gospel and we teach them to be courageous and love the Lord. And uh, 
um, we're always going to do that. But just maybe in terms of some of the parents I know that are fearful of what's happening and thinking about their kids. And I have to say, and I've said this before, when I read Anne Frank um, and I read the book 1984 and I was probably 12 years old and I had this visceral reaction to those books and my parents and friends kind of chuckled at my anxiety. That'll never happen here. They'd say this was the this is the United States of America. We believe in free speech, God, apple pie and baseball. And 40 years ago, that was true. They couldn't imagine being jailed by the thought police. My parents are now in their 80s and they don't have that same confidence that what happened in Nazi Germany would never happen here anymore like they did 40 years ago. So I feel like the anxiety attacks I had when I read those books years ago, they may have been misplaced then, but they're not now. I can open up any county website and find a diversity, equity and inclusion task force demanding you bow down to their agenda. It's the kind of language, it just kind of freaks me out. So just thinking about that, is there any specific preparation or anything you would do differently or the same or just more? How would you answer that? Yeah, you know, we're just, we're getting to a place where these worldview uh, ideologies are gonna clash and there's somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna win. One of those is gonna triumph. And the question is, you know, does God, is God purposing mercy upon us or is he purposing judgment? And uh, the reality is, even if he is purposing mercy, even that's only temporary. Um, and so we we don't know what generation it's going to be when it's seemingly the, the predictions of Orwell's 1984 are going to come true or whether we have a repeat of fascism like we had in the 30s and 40s um, because we're, we're basing... We're basing our thought on the same ideologies as as those realities, and uh, and and so we're just we're we're you know performing the recipe uh, exactly for those terrible horrors to repeat themselves, and and how do we prepare our children for that? You know, I think it really is just we can read the New Testament and we can read the calls to suffer well, and to be faithful unto uh, imprisonment and beatings and death and recognize that that's not going to be some sort of relic for an older generation, that that's going to be us or our children. And so we have to raise them as disciples of Christ. We have to raise them uh, as those who, who can say with Paul, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ, that he is more precious than all that life can offer and all that death can take. And therefore, um, you know, that, that's how we're going to be ready. Um, our anxiety in, the, in a sense, we have a, a concern, you know, the Paul says he has a concern for all the churches. He says he has, you know, Timothy is, will be somebody genuinely concerned about the welfare of the Philippians. So there's a, a proper place for concern, uh, but anxiety in the sense of, you know, Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, you know, but in you know, pray to a sovereign God. Matthew 6, right, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Uh, you can't, by worrying, add a single cubit to your height, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Um, this world isn't our home, and we've we've been allowed to think that it kind of is. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be given a lot of reason, or and our children are going to be given a lot of reason to realize that Christ is more precious than we could have imagined because all these earthly comforts are going to be taken from us, and he's going to be what we have left. And, we're, we're, and we wind up just needing to live for the, the real world, the, the next world. Right. Amen. And I think that kind of uh, leads in here to just how do we have boots on the ground hope in the midst of this time. And I've, I love Psalm 31, 24, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope on the Lord. Could you just briefly, Mike, speak to somebody who is an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know the Lord and... What would you have to say to them in this time? Oh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, the answer is is the same always. You know, you are seeing the failure of uh, worldviews that are, are raising themselves up against the knowledge of God. <clears throat> You're seeing the, the, the failure of experiments that throw off uh, the law of God and the word of God and the authority of God. And if you are an unbeliever, uh, you remain in your sin. Uh, the Bible says that you are dead in your transgressions, that you are by nature a child of wrath, which means that nothing else has to happen to you 
for you to deserve the punishment of God. And you will, you will experience that punishment because you deserve it. Because you have offended him, because you've broken his law, because you've belittled his glory, because you've not lit, loved him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you've not followed after his, his only son. And he says, anybody who rejects his son makes God to be a liar. So you are beholden to the justice of God, and he will execute justice upon you as you deserve. Some people say, you know, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And it's precisely because he knows your heart that he will execute upon you the, the perfection of his justice, which his word tells us is eternity separated from him under the conscious torment of his wrath. But the good news is that that judgment does not have to be what you face. Though you deserve it, just like I do, you don't have to experience it because God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live as a man, to live the perfect life that you and I were commanded to live but failed to live, and to die in our place, to die the death that we very are, we ourselves deserved to die, and to, to bear all of the punishment that we would have faced in hell, to, to bear in his own person the full exercise of the righteous wrath of the Father due to sinners like you and me. And he has died under that wrath, and he has risen again by his own power, raising himself from the dead to demonstrate that he is the victor over sin and death so that everything that needs to be accomplished is accomplished. And he promises that everyone who turns from sin and trusts in Christ will be forgiven. That everyone who disowns his own righteousness, says, I have no way of earning my favor with God, who acknowledges that he has fallen short of his glory, and who, who says, I don't, I don't want anything to do with myself anymore. I'm not my own. I repudiate all that I am. And I purpose now to follow after Jesus because I trust that what he has done avails for me before God. Everyone who does that is forgiven of all things, which you could not be forgiven of through any other means. And so, you know, see the failure of society. See the failure of these opposing ideologies to bring true and lasting satisfaction, to bring true justice, to bring true peace doesn't happen. The only, the only peace and justice that there is, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is coming a day when after all these, you know, these uh, worldviews and, and ideologies go to seed and have their effect, that Christ is coming back here that he is coming to reign on this earth in the very realm in which uh, sin was perpetrated against God, and he will come to destroy the enemies of righteousness and then to set up a kingdom on the earth which he will rule from in righteousness, and all of those who have trusted in him will rule and reign with him. And so if you long for true justice, uh, that's when you'll get it, in the reign of Christ upon the earth first for a thousand years, and then onto eternity on a renewed earth uh, forever. So that is where true ju justification and justice lies. It's all in Christ, and, and it belongs to you to repent and believe in him. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful and enriching and encouraging and Maybe we can do it again at a later date. Yeah, it was a blessing. Thank you, Lynn.